Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Russia's war in Ukraine enters its second week. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky continues to try to rally the world while his citizens fight. We are also fighting to be equal members of Europe. Do prove that you are with us. Do prove that you will not let us go. Do prove that you are indeed Europeans. Meanwhile, in Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden delivered his State of the Union. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Was it the message for the moment? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So before we before we get started on our discussion today, just a couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, as I said last week, if you listened carefully to the top there, I said it's Wednesday, but that we do the discussion podcasts on Thursday. Because things are moving so quickly, you if you regularly listen, if you regularly listen to this podcast, will have noticed that we've been doing more episodes and we've been putting them out more quickly. We just want to make sure that this isn't outdated or that it is as not outdated as possible by the time you by the time you listen to it. Relatedly, some of you are new listeners to this podcast. Um, welcome. We're, we're delighted to, to have you. This is the New Statesman's international news podcast. Normally, we sort of talk about the big stories in the world or things that we're watching, and we, we do try to move it around the globe. We are right now pretty focused on the Russian war in Ukraine and on trying to bring you up-to-date information and analysis on that. So, and if you are a new listener, or if you are, you know, not a new listener, but you have not subscribed yet, um, we encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for the latest. With those housekeeping notes out of the way, Katie, can you give our listeners sort of an update, the latest on the war in Ukraine? Well, it's a rapidly escalating humanitarian 
catastrophe uh, to begin with. Um, we're seeing increasing and indiscriminate attacks on Ukrainian cities. There remains this long and fearsome column of Russian tanks and heavy artillery thought to stretch some some 40 miles heading towards the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. We have also seen what looks like an, an attempted encirclement of Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine's second largest city uh, in the east, and Mariupol, um, a strategic port city in the southeast, very close to, to Crimea. Um, so we are we are seeing a, a slow but steady press forward from from the Russian side. You know, I, I think the the analysis that that we are getting from Western governments is that this is going considerably slower than the Russian military appeared to expect. That they are meeting considerably more uh, resistance than they had anticipated. But unfortunately, it, you know, it it looks like that that is only resulting in further pressure um, to target civilian areas, to increase the pressure um, on Ukraine and to and to try to, to push forward um, more quickly. So I, I think this is going to get considerably worse in the hours um, and days to come. We have seen the first efforts towards talks um, and, and negotiations, but I think, I mean, the Ukrainian side has, has been clear. They are under concerted bombardment they they really do not hold out much hope that this is much more than an than an exercise for the russian side in, in being seen to be open to negotiations and so so i think you know this this is a an increasingly difficult dangerous desperate situation in ukraine it is really incumbent on the international community to step up the pressure and and to really uh, pursue with, with all urgency any effort to affect any sort of reprieve. We actually have a fuller version of that Zelensky clip that we played toward the top. Um, this is him addressing the European Parliament on the 1st of March, and we will let you hear it now. This morning was tragic for all of us. Two cruise missiles hit Kharkiv. We want our children to live. It seems to me that this is fair. Yesterday, 16 children died. And again, President Putin will say that this is an operation and we are beating the military infrastructure. Where are our children? What military factories do they work at? On which rockets? Maybe they ride in tanks. You killed 16 children. We are fighting for our rights, freedom and life. And now we are fighting for survival. And this is our main motivation. We are also fighting to be equal members of Europe. Do prove that you are with us. Do prove that you will not let us go. Do prove that you are indeed Europeans. And then life will win over death. And light will win over darkness. Glory to Ukraine. So obviously that's an incredibly emotional appeal. It's also a very, just a plainly stated appeal, right? It's, it's, he's right. It's not, it's not a ridiculous ask to request that Ukrainian children be able to live, to grow up and live healthy, normal lives in their country. Katie, there's been so much made of how Zelensky has 
sort of risen to this moment. Jeremy has a piece in this week's magazine that we'll put in the show notes for this podcast. Do you have the sense, a very grim question, but is there a sense that all of Zelensky's heroism and all of the world's statements and all of these little, you know, all the Ukrainian flags that we put in our Twitter bio, is there a sense that that's not enough to outweigh the cruelty um, and the the lack of logic and the the expansionist ambitions of, of Putin? I think we are seeing the power of words and character and and frankly courage that President Zelensky is is leading and is reflected and, and mirrored in the actions of so many Ukrainian civilians. It's easy to say this doesn't change the dreadful reality. This doesn't alter Russia's plans. It doesn't improve the prospects for Ukraine's armed forces. But I think these words and these messages and these scenes that we are seeing now, whatever happens in the course of this conflict, this will be the foundation of Ukrainian statehood, the Ukrainian national identity for generations to come. You know, I think President Zelensky, um, deep underground in the in the heart of Kiev, being offered you know, help to evacuate the capital from the United States and saying, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. These are words for the ages. You know, the, the words of the of the Ukrainian defenders on Snake Island, and I'm not sure if I can repeat them, but telling the Russian warship bearing down on them where to go. These are stories and these are actions and these are examples of heroism that will both be handed down through the generations and are inspiring others to action now. I mean, we're seeing Ukrainian civilians standing in front of, of Russian columns, you know, mm-hmm. chanting, chanting occupiers, pushing armored vehicles back with their bare hands. It doesn't change the calculus overall, but it is going to make this a very long and a very difficult conflict from the Russian side. And Perhaps it doesn't alter the, the final outcome, but perhaps it extracts a cost that is so great that it does change minds and that it does, you know, with the example that Zelensky is is setting, you know, he, he is galvanizing in real time the international response, which is much stronger and much more unified than, I'll be honest, I anticipated um, at the outset of this. I would also say in response to in myself just moments ago in the sort of cynical framing of, of my question that the words have made a difference, right? And that I think, as you were saying toward the beginning of this conversation, the re- response and resistance that the Ukrainian people have put up is much stronger, clearly, than the Russian regime anticipated that's not possible if they don't have their leader standing there with them. And I, th- I think you're right, has galvanized the the wider world to respond. And, and while we're speaking of words and their power and all this, I have to say that some of the savviest and just most empathetic and most humane words have been from Ukrainian officials to Russians, right? Setting up a, a hotline so that Russian mothers can call in and find out what's happening to their sons. First of all, breaks through the misinformation and, and the claims that this, is, that this is just a special operation in the Donbass. Or, or when you have the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations reading a text that he said a Russian soldier had sent home to his mother before he was killed, this drives home that, yes, this is about Ukrainian sovereignty. Yes, this is about the right of the Ukrainian people to live in their own country, on their own land. But this war is also a, hum- is also a disaster for, for Russian civilians um, who are being sent into their neighboring country where many of them will die. And where they will discover that the messages that have been drilled into them about 
what is happening in Ukraine. First, it seemed clear that, that some of them were not clear at all that they were going into conflict and that this is where they were heading. But secondly, you know, this, this idea that Vladimir Putin has tried to push that this is a, a denazification operation, that he's saving civilians from genocide, that is not going to survive much contact on the ground in Ukraine. When Russian soldiers are, are arriving in, in towns and villages and being greeted by, by locals who are telling them to be ashamed of themselves, that they're the occupiers, that they, that they should turn around and go home, there is a real and powerful element that that serves in undermining the forces, the physical forces that Russia is able to, to marshal are, are unquestioned. But the will to fight and the ability to maintain morale through a, through a longer conflict is going to be a really critical element. So I think that, that's where these absolutely courageous uh, acts that we're seeing by Ukrainian civilians can have real power and, and can have an effect. I would also say two things that firstly, Ido and I and Alex spoke last Friday and I was sort of saying, you know, what are some of these European countries waiting for? And I, I did want to note to listeners that more sanctions have been imposed, including by European countries in the days between Friday and, and now, including on SWIFT. And then the other thing that I wanted to say, you know, Katie, you have this great piece on, on Putin's falsification of history. And I've been thinking back to this, this interview that I did on this podcast with Peter Pomerantsev a few weeks ago, where basically he said, Putin says that the Ukrainian nation isn't real. But if a nation is something that you understand you're willing to fight and die for and that, you're, that you are living for, then it's the Ukrainians who have a nationalism, right? Like the, the, the Ukrainian people fighting right now, they know what they're fighting for. Many of the Russian uh, troops who are there don't even know why they've been sent there. So the problem with Putin's whole framing here is that is that it's based on a lie. <laughs> Every nationalism is constructed from somewhere. But to the extent that, that nationalism is something that people believe in, and breathe life into, how, how can you look at the last week and say that Ukraine doesn't have it? I, I totally agree. And I, I think there are two really fundamental planks of the Russian identity that, that Vladimir Putin has really tried to build up over, over the last two decades that he is now seriously undermining. Um, the first is this, you know, he has really ramped up commemoration of what Russians call the Great Patriotic War, um, the Second World War. It, it, is, it is not an exaggeration to, to talk about the, the status of the memory of that conflict as a national religion. It has been the one sort of great unifying symbol that, that Russians can agree on. And the narrative of, of that war that Putin has pushed is we were the hero country. We were the victorious nation. We are the country that saved the world from Nazism, you know, the, the sacrifice, the suffering, everything that, that Soviet soldiers and civilians gave during that conflict was in the service of this greater good. So he has really encouraged Russians to, to think of themselves as descendants of this great and glorious nation. And he is trying to perpetuate that now, as he insists that that's what they're still doing, that they're facing down a, a new fascist threat and, and a neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine. And he's going to ramp that up. You know, the propaganda is going to get much, much worse the longer and, and the harder this conflict becomes. But that's not what is happening. I mean, it's it's shameful. President Zelensky is Jewish. He grew up speaking Russian. 
there are no Nazis in the, in the Ukrainian government. It is Russian artillery and tanks that are killing Ukrainian civilians. So as and when that filters back into Russia, that really undermines the image of, of Russians that Putin has been selling and has been basing a lot of his a lot of his appeal on. So I think you're going to see a really fierce battle in the propaganda sphere now in, in Russia to try and maintain that that image in in the face of the truth. But the second element is, you know, he he has long pitched himself as the man who put an end to the the chaos and the instability mm-hmm. and the financial crisis of the 1990s. Russia has now been plunged because of his actions into into a, an economic crisis. Russian citizens are, are lining up outside cash machines. There's a not small probability that Russia defaults on its debts for the first time since 1998. So the basis on which he has claimed legitimacy in Russia, he is now seriously undermined. I think that the where this could become really dark and dangerous in the in the coming days is that, you know, as he if he starts to understand that, if he starts to to feel pressure at home, he will he will one push harder and with ever more terrible and brutal means to affect anything that can be seen to to amount to a victory in Ukraine. And he's gonna he's gonna ramp up hostility against the West. You know, we've already seen him put Russia's nuclear forces on alert in response to international sanctions. I think this is a really dangerous stage now where, where Putin is going to continue to try to play on these grievances, to try to pretend that he is the one defending Russia against the West. You know, the more pressure he feels under, the worse and more serious those threats are going to get. There's no real elegant way to transition after that, but I did want to briefly speak about um, about another set of words and, and national ideas, which is the State of the Union that President Biden delivered last night. Katie and I live blogged. Thank you to those of you who followed along. It was sort of like two speeches, right? There was this top speech on Ukraine and then the broader speech on on everything else. I thought the top part on Ukraine, I, I, I thought that it it showed appropriate resolve and passion and creativity and, and clearly messaged solidarity with the Ukrainian people. I hesitate to sort of pat any Western leader on the back too much because clearly everything they did did not stop war. But I do think that the Biden administration in declassifying intelligence and saying that there was an invasion coming and saying that the Russians were going to do what they did sort of denied them pretext, I think, in coordinating with U.S. allies. All this to say is that I think they've done a fairly good job as far as a good job can, it's like even a term that can be used to describe anything related to any of this. So that part of the speech, I was sort of like, yeah, oh, okay. The rest of it, I just thought was so um, stayed really, you know, and, and, you know, promising that we're going to do the same things that he didn't get done over the past year, right? Like, it's all well and good to say we're going to pass voting rights. But if not one Republican signed on last year, I, I don't I don't see what, what is the, the the mechanism by which they're going to do it this coming year. We're saying, you know, I know that most folks in here secretly agree with me. Well, like, who cares if they secretly agree with you? What matters is what is what they do. But Katie, what did you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the words on Ukraine were moving, heartfelt, and having the Ukrainian amb- ambassador to Washington there as the as the first lady's guest and having her having her stand and having her be be applauded that that was a, a genuinely moving moment. For me, it was an underwhelming speech. Um, it perhaps 
speaks to the level of nerd that I am that I was actually quite looking forward to to hearing the speech I thought that is terrible <laughs> that is okay <laughs> that's unforgivable I know um but because I genuinely felt we are witnessing a, a, a really historic moment right now and it has been extraordinary to see the international response to what's happening in Ukraine. And I think this was a moment to, to rip up whatever had been written and to deliver a really bold vision of the United States place in the world to, to, to rally uh, opposition to Russia. And I, and I also did think that we would see then some serious pressure start to be leveraged against China and pressure on China to to call this out and to condemn Russia's acts in Ukraine, um, which which didn't happen. And in fact, China was almost totally missing from, from the speech. Yeah, this was surreal because if you remember last year's address to both houses of Congress, it was so much about China to the point where it was like, we need to improve our education system because of the threat from China, right? Like things that were not about China were about China in that speech. And this time it was one mention. Yeah, yeah, it really seemed to be... A, a glancing reference and then a deep dive into US domestic politics. It just it felt like a it felt like a missed opportunity and it felt like a, a real-time illustration of the reality of of on the one hand, um America wants to be seen to be to be leading and uniting allies and and, and pushing back against uh, against Russia and China. But on the other hand, there's too much domestic politics to get done to really focus on that. And I thought it was it was striking and kind of disappointing if you've spent as, as much time as I think so many of us have over, over the last week following events in Ukraine to hear Biden delivering the message, you know, we're going to be okay. Don't don't worry. I, you know, I know that you're I know that US consumers are worried about how this is going to affect them, but but you know, don't worry, we see gas prices and we've and we've got that in mind. You know, I I understand politically why why it's salient to make that point, but it feels like the you know the more important message to deliver would be you know there are huge fundamental issues at stake now, and America has an important role to play in that. Not to lead with, don't worry, this will barely affect you. Well, especially because well, two things. First of all, you are. You're, you're setting yourself up for failure there, right? Because then if it does end up affecting consumers, they can say, well, Biden promised it wouldn't. But second of all, it's it's an opportunity to communicate why this top part of the speech matters mm -hmm. to people who spend their lives thinking more about the second half, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, you have, you have members of the German government whose citizens will hurt more, mm -hmm. I grant you that, saying, I understand this is going to cost, but this is, but this is a price we have to pay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Biden did not say anything like that. Right. Right, and say that this we are now in a new era. This is a new moment. This this didn't feel like that. This felt like an attempt still to deal with foreign policy as a discrete, separate topic that we're going to pursue independently of domestic politics, and we're still going to maintain focus on on American jobs and and uh, rebranding the Rust Belt. Right, or as or as he called it last night, the the home for uh, for infrastructure or something like that, yeah. which I don't think is going to catch on. I have to say. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. 
That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. But with that talk about foreign and domestic coming together, we are very briefly going to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our question comes to us from email from Martin. In light of the consequences of having Russian investment and money so entwined into our economy, should the UK be far more cautious over Chinese inward investment? Katie, as our China and Global Affairs Senior Editor, I will let you take this one. I mean, I, I thank you for the question. And I would say, firstly, this exactly demonstrates why Chinese officials are right to be concerned that they may be going to suffer um, some serious reputational consequences for the stance that, they, that they've taken on this. I think we have seen China try to maintain uh, an increasingly precarious balancing act of, on the one hand, insisting that they, that they respect the importance of, of territorial integrity, and on the other, criticizing NATO expansion and criticizing the United States and its and its actions in the lead up to this, uh, they are still refusing to condemn Russia's actions, um, refusing even even to talk in with real language about and to call it an invasion, 
And we are seeing, and I realize I'm taking this question and pivoting to to what I really wanted to to talk about here, which is the, the you know the position that China is trying to move to, which we are now seeing, of trying to offer itself up as 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 a peacemaker. I I had a conversation this morning with an advisor to the Chinese government in Beijing, who floated the possibility that well, you know, if we need a country that has that is a major world player that has good relations with both Ukraine and Russia, um, who would be more appropriate than China and suggesting that perhaps there could be a format those talks might take um, along the lines of five party or six party talks. Um, He suggested that perhaps something like the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Ukraine or a a grouping of uh, China, the US, the EU, Russia and Ukraine, five party talks that one of those formats might be a possibility with with China uh, chairing and, and coordinating and acting as a as a neutral party. Um, but but we should be clear. And as this question suggests that China is not a neutral party, you know, the, the decision not to condemn Russian aggression and to attempt to conflate the invasion of Ukraine with concerns about NATO expansion, you know, China has already taken a, taken a position on this. So, you know, it is not reasonable to see China as a, as a neutral and disinterested party. And I think it is, it is right to be scrutinizing Chinese investments and to, and to just be clear eyed about how, how China sees the world and, and to remember the stance that, that the Chinese government has taken on this. Thanks to Martin for that question. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Friday for a discussion on the latest and next Monday for an interview with Bruno Maceas on what Kremlin watchers got wrong about Putin. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, very important, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.